This month's episode of The Late Night comes a bit later. Uh, I would like to apologize. Uh, We've been having some technical difficulty. Unfortunately, due to that, there won't be a horror news segment this month. Sorry about that, fans. Better luck next month. Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, everyone. We'll be starting off the evening with Ty West, The Innkeepers from 2011, starring Sarah Paxton, Kelly McGillis, and Brenda Cooney. And we'll be following that with Drew Goddard's Cabin in the Woods from 2011, starring Chris Hemsworth, Kristen Connolly, and Anna Hutchinson. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So. (laughs) Let's start with the innkeepers. Yeah. And uh, I would have called this one Stranger Danger with Ghosts, but uh, that's just me. Yeah, that that would be nice. It it really, like, it brought back a lot of memories of my, my shitty, like, retail desk job days. And, you know, it, it's very Bar Harbor to be like, oh, like, half the buildings on Main Street talk about the ghost that lives upstairs, you know, kind of deal. But mm-hmm. um, so this, it, it felt very plausible in, in many ways. <laughs> just you know fans listeners just so you know when i first thought up the list of movies i wanted to watch with axis this was one of the ones i wanted to watch show her most um (laughs) axis leads ghost tours or i'm sorry axis led ghost tours for the bar harbor ghost tours yeah that's uh, how we met once upon a time (laughs) yeah which i do my best to uh tag along on at least once per visit to maine because uh, i love the owners of the bar harbor ghost tours hi jen hey dan (laughs) and um I don't want to give away too much, but one of the stops on the tour is a place with a bit of a different history. I actually mm-hmm. think the Bar Harbor backstory is much, much cooler. Yes. Uh, but As an unbiased reviewer, ghost, a.k.a. somebody who told that story 800 times, yes, it's a better story. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever I imagine the ghost... Uh, I definitely see Brenda Cooney's Madeline O'Malley as mm-hmm. plain as day. And that sends a shiver down my jaded, jaded spine. Um <laughs> So, uh, the director here was Ty West, who's a member of the Splat Pack, which is a nickname lovingly given by UK film critic Alan Jones in Total Film Magazine. Very cute. For a group of what he classified as torture porn directors, uh, which included Alexandra Aja, uh, Darren Lynn Boosman, Neil Marshall, Greg McLean, Eli Roth, Robert Rodriguez, James Wan, Leigh Whannell, and Rob Zombie. Good group of kids. (laughs) You know, it sounds like, you guys are misfits. And Manny turns to Glenn, hey, we should write that down. That'd be a good name for a band. You know, it's, it, you know, in horror, it's like, you guys are sickos. It's like, man, that's, we just, we just wear that shit as a badge like, of pride. Oh my God, no matter thank what you shoot you. at us. You noticed. <laughs> We're totally Adam's family about that shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're a sick fuck. Yeah, we are. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I've been trying to get people's notice for ages and we're finally here. <laughs> <laughs> so. One of the reasons why I like Ty West and one of the reasons why I love showing people Ty West films is I think that he's a master of slow-paced horror with original aesthetics. Mm -hmm. The box office to budget on Innkeepers is $750,000 to $1.18 million. And I think um, that's kind of the theme with indie horrors that doesn't make a lot of money and a lot of these are passion projects. Yeah. But one thing that I'd like to say here is that there are days where... I feel that some movies are not long enough, including some of Ty West. This isn't one of them. <laughs> um, 
No offense mm-hmm. to Time West. Yeah, I mean, you, you've, I... you've picked up on this point if you if you watched the watch along with us. <laughs> like... Yeah. Oh no, wow. we're going to revisit that now. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, there are days when I yearn for Peter O'Toole length masterpiece film, and those are the days I switch on something by Ty West, The House of the Devil, or The Sacrament. Just amazing work. Um, but um, if you own a video editing program, I'd suggest cutting down the film in a few places. Um, one reason it felt so long to me, well, let me just hop forward and I will say where I would do the cutting. Um, I just want to say overall, it's rare I ever make this recommendation, but if you own Lightworks, VideoPad, Adobe Premiere, Apple iMovie, or Final Cut Pro 10, I'd probably make some cuts before showing this. Uh, in addition to the Lana Dunham scene, around 1422 to the 20 minute mark uh the 30 minute mark with the throwing out the garbage and then the last seven minutes of the film you don't fucking need them um that's that's how and you're you get ty if you're listening i'm sorry but this is honestly how i feel about it i've actually had conversations with other people about this we all agree and it's not just people like mainstream it's also fans too and we're all like this is a great film but i would cut here and here and here and here see like this is (laughs) pulling back the curtain like i watch pretty much every movie twice for the podcast like i preview everything myself like start to get some notes down and then we watch it together and I can always tell when a movie is too long because as I'm sitting there in my initial preview and like I'm doing a lot, I'm taking notes, I, sometimes I have popcorn there, I'm, I keep like pressing play and pause, but some movies I somehow find time to open my phone and just swipe through some apps while it's going on right. and there were some real moments for that in, in my initial right. watch through which is simply not a good sign for the movie. Like right. I am all for... A sl- like an, a slow atmospheric movie if there's content, if there's atmosphere, if there's something that makes that time worth it. And while yeah. this movie is packed with atmosphere, it could have gotten all that atmosphere in probably half the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was not a I'm gripping the edge of my seat. No. This was, this was a I had time to go make a panini and come back and eat that panini <laughs> super duper loud. And nothing was going on. Um, yeah, all movies should be measured in paninis um, as, as, as a sidebar. You. Yeah. <laughs> Writing that down, measured in paninis. Yeah, um, yeah I think that... So l- let's just run down what the story is about. This is the last weekend of the Yankee Peddler Inn Hotel, which has a storied, uh, you know, which has a a very seasoned ghost story history to it. Uh, the actual Yankee Peddler Inn does as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Paxton plays Claire, one of the clerks working at the, the hotel, and her co-worker is played by uh, Luke, is played by Pat Healy, who is also a co-worker at the hotel. Um, they both have the same thing. They're supposed to be restocking the towels, uh, just watching the front desk. Not a, you know, a very demanding job. Uh, one of the taglines on the posters is a ghost story for the minimum wage. And that pretty much fucking nails yes. this uh, yeah. plot line. And <clears throat> during this final weekend, Claire wants to see if she can finally get some um, hard proof that there is supernatural activity within the hotel. And um, yeah, it's a great story. But, um, you know, 
when you're trying to watch a modern ghost story for the minimum wage and you keep getting interrupted by datelines to catch a predator, that just doesn't work for an hour and 41 minutes, (laughs) or at least not the way they did it. No. Um, A title where we're addressing the topic of inappropriate behavior with younger people in a horror film is... uh, David Slade's Hard Candy with Elliot Page and Patrick Wilson. Mm-hmm. And that's a fantastic film, but it wouldn't have made as much sense or had as much impact if we threw in Michael Myers or Bigfoot into the foreground with them, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what goes wrong here. This is a fantastic film, right? Uh, but there's a lot of things that go wrong with them. So. Yeah. 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 This is, I, I spent a lot of time cringing in this one as somebody who's you know been the the younger co-worker in the situation where you think you found a friend and then suddenly your 50 year old co-worker is talking about the vacation you could take together um this felt all too familiar and i will give it oh my god full marks for accuracy in workplace dynamics like it felt horrifyingly real for someone who has mm-hmm. been in this exact position and that's that's what i really appreciated about it i think like it's really rooted in stuff that ty west knows like he talks about in interviews how he's like yeah the only jobs i've ever had are either minimum wage jobs or directing because like mm-hmm. i and the directing he he started doing was pretty you know bare bones small budget stuff where Mm -hmm. he was scraping together whatever he could because he's coming from this minimum wage background this is not something he's he's making up like he knows exactly what that life is like and it fucking shows because it's very on point in terms of those those workplace dynamics the horrifying things you find on your co-worker's laptop all of the above (laughs) Yeah, he actually said that he had wanted to come back and and shoot something else there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then he said that, you know, that that just wasn't possible, that that was going to be it. But he could have actually seen coming back and doing another story there. Yeah. And my, you know, the thing that I think went wrong with it is that, you know, I think we either, and I said this on the watch along, I think we either needed more ghosts or more time with mm-hmm. the widower or more time with uh, Lee, who was played by Kelly McGillis. Yes. And... To me, the biggest thing, you know, sitting there thinking about it a little bit longer, I think the thing that made would have made the most sense is to tie together the predatory relationship with the ghosts and have it make more sense. It would have made more sense if Luke had tried something with Claire, been turned down, killed himself, and then tried keeping Claire in the hotel, and then it's revealed that his dead body is in the bedroom upstairs. Like, to me, that would have made more sense if there was a, you know, to this sort of to kind of seal the deal on this desperation mm-hmm. right because there is one thing that kelly mcgillis says of uh, that really echoes true which is what do the spirits want the yeah. spirits the, the spirits want to live and that's that's kind of what we're getting everybody there wants to live but they don't really know how to live mm-hmm. you know the dead people are at a severe disadvantage but uh claire mm-hmm. and and luke are also you know they're they're disadvantaged in their own ways as well mm-hmm. Um, Luke is just this character where he wants to have a relationship, but he's just picking, you know, the worst possible candidate (laughs) at the worst time and in the worst place. And with the worst ways to woo, a.k.a. faking a haunting for months and months and months (laughs) until it goes terribly wrong. (laughs) 
Right. It's Ghostbusters, except mm-hmm. in a very weird way, we actually liked Bill Murray as Dr. Peter Venkman. Okay. Because he was also Mr. Bad Touch Date Rape. No, right? no, but I fucking hated Bill Murray as Peter Venkman. I yeah, honestly sure like did, Luke but better not, but than- the rest of the world didn't. <laughs> I like the Luke better didn't. than Peter Venkman. Controversial take, but- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I like I totally agree that I I think there could have been swaps that would have made this more compelling. Like we talked about this, I think I I'm pretty sure it was off mic, but um the idea that I also like I would like I would have liked to see more of a sense of desire and motivation from the ghosts because there's very little understanding of what drives the ghosts. So like that's one of the things that we yeah. kind of talked about um re the the ghost story, the Bar Harbor ghost story that we talked about. I'm not going to obviously not going to tell the whole thing because you got to go on the ghost tour to get that. But the the ghostly bride that's left over at that inn is um you know, a very jealous bride. She's jealous of women. She's seductive towards men. And so this provides all of this fodder that is what makes a great ghost story. You get very specific kind of content about the ways that they interact with people. It's pretty clear exactly what the ghost wants. So, and that would have slotted in so neatly to the story because like Luke doesn't get any contact. It's all Claire and all of the hostility is towards Claire. And so you could have a ghost that was jealous of Claire, that was jealous of the attention that she was getting. Anything that would have provided more direction for the ghost. Similarly, like the old man feels like a little shoehorned in like why did he kind of team up with the other ghost like the two of them had no interaction yeah Mm -hmm. i think that that's i okay so just to answer some of that yes my my reading of it was that that this gentleman who we're seeing show up at the hotel room at the end the older gentleman Mm -hmm. um is was was the guy who stood up madeline o'malley on their wedding day perhaps and that maybe the timing of when Madeline O'Malley passed is not exactly what Claire interprets, you know, what Claire thinks it is. And I also think that the that Madeline maybe wanted a child and that's why they took Claire. I think that it was that they, you know, they wanted to have a family together. That was sort of what I came up oh, with. Oh, see, I saw totally suicide different. letter. Yeah. Huh? No, keep there going. There was a suicide letter that the old man wrote where he was you know, basically apologizing for what he did. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. It's kind of like, well, this might be the guy who stood Madeline up and this is the reason why she hung herself. But I agree with you. There's no real, well, the the evidence of that motivation isn't really 100% clear. No. And the other thing was with an hour and 41 minutes, we had a shitload of time to talk about (laughs) how the, you know, the all the other ghosts that might've haunted the hotel or we could have talked way, way more about Madeline. Yeah. Um, yeah, it really should have been spelled out. Yeah, more. so, like, the I think, like, I love this theory. I, it didn't, I, I didn't pick up on anything like that. Like, for me, one, like, I'm not sure about the timeline. Like, I was imagining, um, like, I guess it could match up. I didn't think the guy was old enough to have been the, yeah. the beau for Madeline O'Malley. Yeah. Um, and then, given historicity, like, 
Madeline O'Malley probably would have been around Claire's age when she was getting married. You know, in Yield yeah. days, you would have been getting married probably between like sixteen and twenty-two were your your real marriageable years. <laughs> and that's definitely you know Claire range. So I can I definitely imagine them as more competition versus you know a, a familial relationship. But right. I totally agree. Like any more information about Madeline would have been great. And we talked about this too, like with all of the, uh, like the historical documentation that's hung up on the walls in the hotel. Like I was so desperate for that lore. I was like, show me what's in that frame. Show me the story, show me the news article. But to be honest, like when I looked into the hotel itself and like, we can dive into this because I did a bunch of research on sure. the Yankee peddler and today and historically, it's really hard to find many details on the ghost stories from the inn. Right. So it's just that everybody believes it's haunted. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're down, we can, we can hop into this now because Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, so before I get into the ghost stories specifically, let me just catch you up. Um, for those who did not watch, did not listen to the watch along, so the Yankee Peddler Inn is, again, a real-life inn. It's in Torrington, Connecticut. Um, and this place was closed for repairs in 2015 and has been closed down ever since. Um, the backstory, it opened in 1891. It was originally called the Conley Inn as it was first owned by husband and wife duo Frank and Alice Conley until their deaths in 1910, both natural causes, according to records. Their niece sold the inn a couple of years later, and the new owners renamed it the Yankee Peddler Inn, and thus we kind of reach where we are today. Now, I tried doing some digging for recent updates since, as we know, it's been closed since 2015. It keeps having the promise of being reopened, but no changes. So there have been several local news updates over the years about planned reconstruction that never seems to have happened. So it generally seems like the owners have been overwhelmed by all attempts at repair, and then the most recent article I found is in the Connecticut newspaper, The Register Citizen, titled Nonprofit Development Group Targets Torrington's Yankee Peddler Inn. That was January 27th of this year, of 2021. So... Okay. The the article is by Emily M. Olson, who has written multiple articles on the Yankee Peddler Inn over the years about upcoming changes that never came to fruition. Really, props to you, Emily, for the devotion and continued optimism. But this newest article talks about a legal loophole that the mayor and her legal team have found to deal with the collapsing eyesore of a hotel that they seem to deeply resent. I mean, seriously... Torrington Economic Development Director uh, Rista Malanka said, quote, it's blighted and it's impacting the whole area, property values, sales of properties, end quote. It's blighted is what she said. They don't like how the, what the inn is doing for the town. So the mayor, Eleanor Carbone, was a little more polite when she talked about Public Act 1992, and that's the act that they're using to push through a government-organized repair that the owners will have to either pay for later or put the building up for sale to cover the costs. So Carbone said, quote, There are five qualifications for this law. No occupation of the building, no marketing of the property, no good faith efforts to sell it, not subject to foreclosure, and the owner failing to show any effort. The inn qualifies under all those conditions. <laughs> so, perhaps now that the problem is being forced out of the owner's hands, some progress will happen. I'm still skeptical, though, because I haven't seen any updates on that in the last five months. Plus, it seems like this building's real curse is being in a constant state of disrepair. 
But, <laughs> you know, fingers crossed, maybe one day we will get back into the Yankee Peddler Inn, even if it is a best Western as was proposed. Mm. Now, when we get to hauntings, I really looked for accounts of Yankee Peddler Inn hauntings, and they are all sparing at best. So Ty West himself has talked in interviews about the crew feeling presences in the hotel, but he has said that he doesn't believe in ghosts, so all of his accounts are pretty sparing. He brushes them off. And so he's like, well, yeah, Sarah Paxton said she felt a presence in her room, but I don't believe it, whatever. So we don't get a lot from, from him. There aren't really any accounts of hauntings that seem to have an identifiable source or that are particularly reputable. Like, as somebody who used to lead ghost tours, the things that I look for in a good story are, you know, like, the names of the people involved, the dates, any supporting evidence, photography, recordings, anything to bolster a story beyond, uh, I had a weird feeling in room 253. And you don't really get that anywhere that I could find. Um, there are some general, basically, feelings that things are spooky, but not a lot of concrete information. There's, you know, basically what we saw in the movie, like doors open and close, weird sounds, like that kind of deal, which you get in pretty much every old building. But <laughs> where things get interesting is when you get into the comments section of any page on the Yankee Peddler Inn with an open forum. So... Almost all of the reviews are either from tourists saying that things felt spooky or from locals scoffing at the idea that the hotel is haunted. Like, really, someone said that the apartment building across the street is haunted as shit, but any haunting at the inn is bullshit. But my favorite review I, I want to read for you now because, oh my gosh, it's, whew, it's a masterpiece. This review was left by all caps, Tony W and five other people. Um, and I'm going to read it to you as best I can. Uh, it's impossible to fully capture the creative grammar and spelling of this review, but I'm going to do my best. <clears throat> it begins. We from New York City stay two night here. We come to ski next town. I didn't know this hotel is haunted hotel. I ask the hotel when I check out. Why? Because something came up. The first night have something paranormal happen. When I and my girlfriend go to sleep, I keep ba my bathroom lights on around like 3 a.m. I feel my bad shock it. I think maybe is my girlfriend shock it. But one min later, my bad keeps shock it again. So I open my eye. The fixing bathroom lights is off. Not my GF turn off the lights. She go to bathroom. I was know it. And then, of course, I'm not go check it. And next morning, I ask her, did you go bathroom last night? She said no. I'm not tell her what happened. If she knows, she will check out right now. But I tell my friend what going on. He tell me last night he have a dream. The dream he talked to one old lady. The lady asked him how long you guys stay. OMG, this is happen. Until now, me and my friend not tell girlfriend what going on. But I feel cool. I ask my friend, do you still want to stay this hotel next time? Ha ha. I'm crazy. End quote. <laughs> Tony W. 
thank you for this gift. I, thank you, Tony W. I hope you enjoyed your stay, and I hope your girlfriend didn't break up with you after this, because, oh, what, what a wild ride you've taken us on. I, again, I please... Please read this for yourself if you are looking for this review and many other choice options. My favorite page I found is on damnedconnecticut.com, their page on Yankee Peddler Inn in Torrington. Tony W. and other notable reviews are right there for the picking. Uh, truly great, like, afternoon reading. Like, maybe <laughs> grab a cup of tea, maybe splash something stronger in there and just go to town because it's a delight. <laughs> Yeah, and now as much as we've as much as we made fun of this, suggested cutting this, um, there is you know I will say I, I would like to talk about some of the positives. Oh, the music yeah. was done by Jeff Grace, who does almost everything. Get you know almost everything for Glass Eye Picks, mm-hmm. and and definitely everything for Ty West. He's definitely my favorite horror composer for the early two thousands. Um, and with everything that we've we've said about it, you might be wondering like, well, why would you watch it? And here's the answer. Uh, Brenda Cooney is Madeleine O'Malley. Mm-hmm. Um, because for less than five minutes of screen time, I actually find it totally worth it. Um, I-, I would like to point out the costume design was by Elizabeth Vestola. And the makeup department is where I put the, the, the major props. Um, Jennifer Houck, who was the makeup intern. Brenda McGuire, who was the makeup department head. And Brian Spears, who was the special makeup effects artist. Mm-hmm. Those three uh, deserve a lot of credit for this film, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, there was gorgeous because... work on it. I mean... And, and Vestola's work with the costume mm-hmm. design. Yeah. So, so all four of them. Yeah. That... Brenda Cooney looked fantastic mm-hmm. as Madeline O'Malley. The makeup was really gorgeous, really atmospheric, nicely done, felt period accurate, but spooky. And also side props to Brenda Cooney because she stayed in character 100% of the time that she was in costume and on set and scared the ever-loving shit out of Sarah Paxton nonstop. Um, <laughs> totally also, <worth> remake up <laughs> like the the painting and the special effects on our good friend old man after his death were gorgeous. Both him in the bathtub mm-hmm. post suicide and um and him as a ghost. That skin painting was so beautiful, so beautiful. Like it's really subtle, really wonderfully done and really shines. I think in a movie where most of the characters are so naturalistic and very fresh faced, Um, lovely work, just really lovely work. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, the downside of it is that it's basically at one point it becomes a Haynes from hell video commercial. Right. There's just, just one moment where you're like, oh god, I didn't need to see that. The other side of it is there's just this amazing, amazing makeup effects. Mm-hmm. And it's really a shame that the film didn't do better. Um, I, I definitely think that it, it just needs to be cut. Yeah. It's a great film. It just needs to be cut. Um, but I also think there is one other thing. It's a small detail, but I definitely... I would also say that the other thing is the way that, that it's been marketed... Um, the cover that it's always that it's always advertised with is this, you know, this sort of uh, digital cover. And there's mm-hmm. uh, one cover that was done. You know, the original movie poster was done by Thomas Hodge of the Dude Designs, and it was about a million times better uh, than anything digital. And Tom has done, you know, the Heat and uh, you know other Ty West films, other stuff for Glass Eye Picks. He's just done tons. You know, Wolf Cop. Mm-hmm. He's done tons and tons of movie posters. And the one thing was, like, you know, we were hitting this, you know, when you're looking at this film, it's, 
it looks very it looks very vintage yeah and i felt that that airbrush was much more appropriate for the marketing than the digital look and that's something that a lot of companies have been tripping up on lately um they always use this sort of digital new age sort of you know very glossy sort of you know covers for their dvds or their or their movie posters it just doesn't look great um just want to throw that out there that would be the other thing i would also change but yeah 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 i definitely again like credit where credit is due it's a good movie on the whole like i know we ragged on it but it's a good movie and there's a lot to love about it so (sighs) um yeah so the cabin in the woods (laughs) um (laughs) what a what a wild ride we've been on (laughs) so you know written by joss whedon and drew goddard um, it takes the familiar plot of Evil Dead. A group of college kids take a vacation to a remote cabin in the woods and get attacked by zombies that they accidentally summon. Sound familiar, guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you've seen and heard it a million times. Um, what's really neat is that Goddard and Whedon layer in another subplot. That your favorite horror movies are actually a complex ritual sacrifice meant to keep ancient gods slumbering. Um, and the cabin in the woods is located on one of several locations spread out over the earth and each place has its own rules and regulations and it feels a lot like arkham horror it feels a lot like the arkham horror version of the board game don't wake daddy (laughs) (laughs) uh this is don't wake daddy for keeps because if Mm -hmm. daddy wakes up you are getting fucked up Um, yeah as a side note this would make a great game like the idea of like a a property management game of you being the office (laughs) workers either like a board game or a video game like that would be so much fun. <laughs> and I remember the first time I saw the poster, I was like, what a stupid fucking idea. Then I watched the film and felt stupid for judging the film mm-hmm. by its poster. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. yeah, it's it's brilliant. It's so much fun. It's and as loath as I am to ever praise Joss Whedon, like it's it's uh-huh. a really fucking fun movie that's clever and and quick moving and like I, I really appreciated it, especially in contrast with the innkeepers, because I mean they're very different movies in a lot of ways. They obviously have some similarities, but the pacing just is such a polar opposite kind mm-hmm. of event. It's such a snappy film that's packed with stuff in every single second that stuff is on screen, which is yeah. fun. It's nice. It's a really fun ride every moment of it. Yeah, and, and uh, it, I did, I, I watched this one with my 14-year-old sister, too, which is, you know, always a, a bold choice, but <laughs> she also just, she kept saying that what she really wanted to see was a full movie about the Japanese schoolgirls that we see as, like, the subplot that was horrifyingly almost cut from the movie, but I feel like that's such a good sign for the movie that even those yeah. tiny little B-plots are so engaging that you want that content. That, um, yeah. that made that movie for me. Oh, it's that made that brilliant. Movie yeah, and... When they're singing mm-hmm. and Jenkins just leans into the scream and he goes, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And Truly like, peak of cinema. Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, and for the record, the uh, the monster there for the Japanese team, Kiko, or Japanese floaty girl, as she's listed in the credits, um, is probably a type of yurei called a, um, an onryo. 
Uh, that's a spirit that oh. comes back seeking vengeance for the wrongs done to it in life. And it's the same kind of spirit as Sadako in The Ring and Kayako in The Grudge. So this is a, fam- a riff on a very familiar model, again, for for horror fans. But I, I think more movies should end with uh, a happy frog at the end. I'm very committed <laughs> to this trope. Like, as much as I love murder cats, like, happy frog is a very close, a close second. second. Yeah. Very yeah. close. <laughs> Uh, I mean, to me, the coolest aspect is that it's a satire of corporate all office. It's a yes. it's a satire of cor- corporate office culture. Mm-hmm. Again, this is something I could definitely see becoming a, a serious TV series. Yeah, this is something where it it would actually make sense. Uh, I was the only thing I was surprised was we didn't really get a water cooler scene. We True. had all, we had the rest of everything that was inappropriate about corporate office culture. Um, all of the sexism, mocking, right, ageism. Mm-hmm. It was it was all in there. It was fantastic. But the only thing I and I love I love the the back and forth between between um Hadley and and Jenkins' character where you know the the movie actually opens up where they're talking about liberating the guy's cabinets and he's on fertility drugs to have a kid Uh you're just sitting there going jesus christ this is a horror movie yep (laughs) yeah i mean the whole thing is it's a double satire it's a satire of horror and it's a satire of of offices it's great I actually wondered if they were fucking with us with the casting too. Anna Hutchinson is no stranger to horror. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the yellow Power Ranger in Power Rangers Jungle Fury, <laughs> which make, to me makes sucking a dead wolf tongue seem tame by comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, Kristen Connolly was in M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening in 2008. Uh, she was in the intro to it. She's the girl on the park bench when her friend stabs herself in the neck with a needle. Um, France Kranz, who played Marty, was in another Shyamalan feature, uh, The Village. He's the guy who said, do not jostle about so or you'll ruffle my coat as he got married to Judy Greer. So I'm assuming he found out what like, you know, what it was like to sleep on the couch the first night of his honeymoon. Um, He was also in 2015's Bloodsucking Bastards. And then we had Jesse Williams, Mm -hmm. uh, who was in the 2019 remake of Jacob's Ladder. Uh, Bradley Whitford played Hadley. Uh, he's been in horror for a long time. Yeah. He was Tom Dash in the in the Deal episode of Tales from the Dark Side back in the 80s. And he was also in Jordan Peele's Get Out and more recently was in Godzilla's King of the Monsters. Yeah, Bradley um, Whitford is yeah. everywhere. He is. Yeah. If you have watched TV in the last, you know, 20 years, you've seen Bradley Whitford somewhere. <laughs> And uh, Tim Desarn is really seasoned. You know you're in a. You know you're seasoned when you've been on every fucking episode of TV Star Trek that ran in the nineties. Yes, I, yes. I wonder, And I always wonder if there's an award for you have been on all these shows. You know? I know. Like, like, how many different alien makeups can we put you under and then put you in the same series <laughs> as different characters? The answer: fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> You just see Patrick Patrick Stewart comes out with an award, and it's like, here is our Star Trek glory hole award. You know, it's like, oh, yes, yeah. bow your head in shame. But yeah, but Desarn is, you know, definitely, um, you know, the weird thing about Desarn was he played Mordecai, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um and I sat there and I was also wondering afterwards, like, man, I wonder if he was one of the virgins that survived the tribulation. Like, maybe. <laughs> oh, my God. I hope so. I mean, that would explain why he takes everything so seriously. <laughs> right. 
And I was like, you know, maybe that's why he is that way. Uh It's like, he comes out there and he's doing this. He's really trying to sell his act. Like, who the fuck would give a shit? If I was like mid-60s and I I like coming out there, he probably like spits out the chewing tobacco, then has to like go back and like wash his mouth out. He's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, it was too real. Oh God, you know? Oh, honey. You can... Yeah, you got the feeling that Morty was not at all who he was playing mm-hmm. at all. He believed in the seriousness of it, but he didn't. But no. you know, as soon as he was, he was on the phone call. Yeah, he was not the backwoods hick he he pretended no, he w- to be. No. <laughs> That's rude. I don't know who else is on the call. Yeah, I like to think <laughs> that like the outside of the gas station looks that way, and then um the but the Confederate flag in the window is actually like a privacy screen to his like. <laughs> You know, very, very nice dark wood library with a little like brandy <laughs> snifter by the side. One of those There's like, like a Starbucks tote in the up. corner yep, yep, with yep, some yep. city mugs. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. He definitely like he was an early adopter of like Keurig pods and espresso machines and stuff. <laughs> the funny thing was he was in he was in uh, Tales from the Crypt. Um, well, he was he was also on Tales from the Crypt in the night. But the thing that made me laugh hardest when I was going through his credits was he was in a film called Miracle in the Woods. How <laughs> 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 like, oh, beautiful! <laughs> I'm here to I'm here to audition for this movie, The Cabin in the Woods. Is it going to be oh, like Miracle God. in the Woods? Not exactly. It'll be a miracle if they live. Yeah, depends on whose miracle. Yeah, no, Tim. No, Tim. It's it's a different miracle. <laughs> of course, Sigourney Weaver makes a cameo at the mm-hmm. end as the uh, director of the program. And my favorite is like, Virgin. I'm not a. And I really would have liked to have seen Sigourney go <coughs> back to her Virgin counts to <coughs> you no. know? just something. I wanted to see something really, really inappropriate mm-hmm. for all the other inappropriate shit we had already watched. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver trying to be above it all. I'm like, Sigourney, darling, your hands are dirtier than anyone else's. Embrace it. Right, exactly. <laughs> I really felt like, but Virgin, I'm not a... And, she, and the only thing she answers is, we work with what we have. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no. I didn't buy that line, sorry. Yeah, there's there's something worse at play here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And this is another one, I, I talked a lot in the watch along about it, but just stellar makeup, just off the mm-hmm. fucking chart for the number of different prosthetics and special effects and everything that they AFX put together. Um, that's, again, done by Heather Langenkamp um, from mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street as an actor who is now a makeup artist with her husband, David Leroy Anderson, or David Leroy, I don't know, it's... Odd capitalization that makes me wonder if it's Leroy and not Leroy. So sorry if I uh, fucked up your name, sir. Um, Mr. Anderson. (laughs) He's won two Academy Awards for makeup. They have a company together. They did such good work. They turned close to a thousand people, again, into 60 different types of monsters, which is jaw-dropping. Just the scope of work and the fact that all of it was so high quality. You... Okay, let's talk about the monsters for a second. Because Mm -hmm. 
I thankfully I I was going to pause on the uh, the whiteboard with all of the the monsters that they were betting on for the for the office pool. Oh, I've taken screenshots. And I shit mean, like for I that, definitely did yeah. pause and talk about it, but somebody <laughs> somebody in uh, IMDb trivia had helpfully scribed it all down for me already. Bless you. So the the full list of monster possibilities that they again these are the ones that are written. There are many more, but the many, ones that were more. on the board are werewolf, alien beast, mutants, wraiths, zombies, reptilius, clowns, witches, sexy witches, demons, hell lord, angry molesting tree, giant snake, deadites, <laughs> mummy, the bride, the scarecrow folk, snowmen, dragon bat, ah, dragon bat, vampires, yeah. dismemberment goblins, sugar plum fairy, merman, the reanimated, unicorn, huron, sasquatch slash wendigo slash yeti, generous grouping there, dolls, zombie redneck torture family, the doctors, jack-o'-lantern, giant, twins, and Kevin. Now that's an uh, Elijah Wood and Sin City reference. Uh, and Goddard said that Kevin was supposed to be a, a sweet looking guy who seemed like he might work at Best Buy until he dismembers yeah. people. Real shame we missed out on Kevin. Elijah would have brought the pain. Oh like, my God. That would have yes. been amazing. I would him have as Kevin delighted. Is, I mean, him as Kevin is anytime terrifying. Elijah. Okay. A, anytime Elijah Wood shows up. B, anytime Elijah Wood shows up in horror. Amazing. So I will say the Cabin in the Woods wiki has an impressive amount of information about all of those creatures and more. They really wrote entries for every single mysterious creature that is seen as a blur for half a frame, including yep. such notable entries as creature with patterned segments of armor on its head, which I think was my favorite entry just because I was like, I, I had no idea this existed. Like They packed in so many creatures every single time you click pause <laughs> in the movie for the last 20 minutes, and there's something new there. <laughs> yeah. The craziest thing is if you're a hardcore horror fan, mm -hmm. you really realize that you have a fucking problem because it's like somebody's, you know, if you're standing there and you're watching horror movies with your friends and, you know, your other friends do not watch horror movies, you know, you've, you're really like out there when you're watching this robot with a buzzsaw attack people and they're like, what the fuck is that? I'm like, oh, that's probably like a reference to hardware. And they're like, what the fuck is hardware? Or it could be virus too. Mm -hmm. What the fuck is virus? It's like, oh, I wasted my life. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and it's amazing. Like, the thought that goes into them, too, is so impressive because, like, if, if for example, the one of the ones on the board, Reptilius. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's We actually, we've taken that, we've taken, it's just as a fun game, my friends and I, we've taken that screenshot and we've actually tagged our names for the different things that we thought would kill us in that movie. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, oh I my always... god. That's like the best getting to know you game. It's not like, oh my god, which celebrity is I? Like, which yeah, no, it's which, which monster your has your three? fucking number. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's, <laughs> let's look at Reptilius for a second, because this one is my favorite. Like, because I was like, oh wow, which one's Reptilius? And I look it up, it's the big, like lizard dude unsurprisingly if you go into the inspiration se section in the wiki they're like well reptilius looks to be an homage to the reptile like alien and species although the most famous reptilian humanoid from the horror genre is the creature from the black lagoon and then they continue that it also bears appearance um, and demeanor references to the xenomorphs, also reminiscent from the gator ghoul from Scooby-Doo. Then yep. they talk about how Holy the ways shit. it behaves are shot-by-shot -shot recreations of Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> it also could be inspired by the 1978 film Slithus. 
And then the name comes from the 1961 Danish giant monster film Reptilicus. It keeps going. Then they also talk about how another possible inspiration could be from the Zaytaran, a humanoid ninja reptile from the Mortal Kombat series. So every single one of these background creatures is packed with more horror references, like from one yeah, thing to fifty things. Yeah, if you look at the doctors when they come out, mm -hmm. if you come, if you look at the doctors when they come out, it looks like a mashup of the Strangers and um, the Leslie Vernon story. They're all wearing like Leslie Vernon style masks. Mm -hmm. It's really crazy how 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 much love was poured yes. into each creature yes like i, I would the, sit down like the doc the real behind the scenes documentary i want is just the monster design of this movie to like hear from the makeup and the sfx team and the design team to be like yeah here's the actual thought process and the amount of time we put into every single one of these fucking creatures because it's endless and it's like it's so little screen time but so much work for it and <sighs> Like we talked about in cabin, uh, sorry, in, in the innkeepers, how like the le sub five minutes we get of Madeline O'Malley is so good. You get this times a hundred where you have right. all of these blips of incredible creatures that leave you wanting more, except it's such but a not volume the same packed. <laughs> but that's, I would like to point out that that's two totally different oh, things. Yeah, absolutely. One was creep, right? Mm -hmm. The creep that comes off of Madeline O'Malley yes. is tingling. What you get out of the what you get out of the sixty or seventy or so people who were doing these other it's monsters, an orgy of pain. That's it. It's <laughs> in, well, actually, it's entertainment. Well, I was yes, really thinking absolutely. It's action entertainment. You know, one th one quote I really loved from Anderson was when he said that we had nearly seventy people at peak, but in effect, we had one hundred and forty people mm -hmm. because everybody had at least two jobs. It was crazy, but people had an incredible time. None of us are ever going to forget it. Uh, none of us are ever going to forget it, and we're never all going to be in the same room again. I thought that was so sad how yeah. we, how we left how we left it off, right? It's like, and we're never all going to be in the same room I again. I know, and that's like, it, I mean, it's such a, a film crew experience where, like, you're yeah. in this world like whirlwind experience for this brief stretch of time, and you forge these working relationships, and clearly that that team must have gelled to put out work that was so good. Yeah. And then you're like, oh well, create that kind of magic. Yeah, and then you're like, oh yeah. well, like we made something jaw-dropping and astonishing that people will love for years to come goodbye i'll never see you again <laughs> farewell yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's a real like time capsule moment and it, it, yeah just fantastic work it, oh, it's so good it's so good and it's yeah. I, I also like i don't want to underemphasize the work that like the non-special effects humans did too like the core cast of this movie is fantastic everybody is so good at the archetypal roles but also like you know adding some nuance in there there's there's I wonderful mean, work there there's two things that we haven't talked about at all yet mm -hmm. which is of course the bong which mm -hmm. you know which you can buy <laughs> Right. That's yeah. I know how everybody laughs, but that thermos bong actually exists, and people still buy and sell that thing. Regularly. I seriously hope so because again, they spent five thousand dollars building the working prototype right. for a bong mug, and I think it, it costs like a hundred something on Etsy. Totally worth it. Yeah. Um. Um. The yeah. other thing is the other thing we didn't talk about at all is that Chris Hemsworth is in the fucking movie, Motor. That, which is just like Motor, I which, can't. Which slam dunks over this whole experience, which is like, by the way, Chris Hemsworth is in there and he plays like, 
He plays like a nice guy mm-hmm. who ends up becoming an alpha male jock. Yeah. The- <laughs> he dies in the most epic fucking way possible. This movie, <laughs> like this movie and his appearance in Ghostbusters as well, just like to me speaks such volumes about chris hemsworth as a person like he is so affable and about the roles that he takes he's just like yeah i'm up for it i'm up to do this weird ass thing like am i thor yeah but also i want to do this (laughs) it actually looked like he lost weight for the role yeah it looked like he was like because he's usually got gigantic biceps yeah to be fair he was not like he like don't get me wrong he was fucking built for thor but he was less built for the first one he got bigger and bigger movie by movie so it's not like as staggering of a difference as i thought but it's actually at a point now where his stunt double is kind of upset with him because he's bulking up faster than his stunt double is able to nobody can keep up with him (laughs) it's it's terrifying it's terrifying like (laughs) any everybody on earth can it can justifiably be in awe of Chris Hemsworth, <laughs> and yeah. that is that is a stance I am willing to take. <laughs> He's like Michael B. Jordan. It's mm-hmm. just like it's this, it's this m- massive amount of talent, and it's also yeah. like it's fa- it's it's a massive amount of intelligence and talent matched only by a physique. That's like where you're like, wow, that's really like. Did yeah. you miss anywhere? Like, do, <laughs> <laughs> like you're just. T- checking all the boxes no, in every Melissa category. Melissa McCarthy got it just right. Yeah. Melissa McCarthy was just like, she, they were on the set of Ghostbusters and it's like, well, he can't sing and he started singing beautifully. She's like, shut up, Chris! <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like even, you know, Chris Hemsworth was in this as well. I mean, the thing is, this whole movie was really a masterpiece. It It's, it's weird because it's such a jumble. Mm-hmm. of everything in terms of horror movies it's just this big jumble of of tempo speed you know that was really a hit or miss kind of movie the fact that the dismount was even as perfect as it was was amazing even the the music they picked going with nine inch nails is last as the as the final song was just fucking amazing absolutely right? so, yeah yeah it was it's awesome. and I think I think one of my favorite things about it and like we that we've already touched on is like how packed it is with stuff like as somebody who is so passionate about lore and the secrets of stuff like when I get really into something like I love to know all of that backstory like anyone who knows me knows I have like all of the collected world encyclopedias for my favorite game like video games and stuff like I want all that deep knowledge and this movie is so densely packed with content like you've clearly talked about like the spin-off series that could come out of this of the like the office stuff that's I think easy it's pretty apparent, right? yeah there's also the there entire could be an story RPG yeah series there's written off so of this it's as well. rife for spin-offs including yeah. i want more information about the old gods like that last 10 20 seconds of cronus's hand just busting forth from the earth to begin the apocalypse it's like holy fucking shit who's down there what are we hiding and how can i find out all about it (laughs) yeah chronos is not what i was expecting and that's actually the most amazing part right you're like Mm -hmm. oh you know because chronos was for those who do not know ancient greek mythology oh yeah trust me the father of zeus poseidon and hades i've got i've got paragraphs written on this (laughs) 
basically treated his kids kind of like they were tumors yeah. and just kept re-eating them. Yeah, let me, and, uh, sh- should I get into it? Because I, I, sure. yeah, because I've got, I've got a lot. Yeah, so this is, this is the thing. Um, so again, according to the credits, we know that the, the mega hand that shows up and blasts out of the earth as the alarm clock of the apocalypse at the end of the movie belongs to Kronos. Um, Kronos, 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 there are various spellings. So even though his name sounds like he should be a delicious member of the Cronut family, Kronos was a big-ass titan best known for castrating his dad and eating his children before getting his ass royally whooped by his own son. So let's break that down. I will take any excuse I can to talk about Greek myths, and here we are. So, taking a little a little cue from uh, from the innkeepers, chapter one, time for Cronus to fight his dad. So, in ye old Greek mythology, Uranus, the sky, and Gaia, the earth, were very in love, I assume, because there was literally nobody else around. So they popped out twelve enormous, horrifyingly powerful children, the Titans. So, Lil Cronus was the youngest of the first batch of Titans, the babyest brother, if you will. And uh, again, let me be perfectly clear, he was little in the same kind of way that Clifford the Big Red Dog was once little. He's, yeah. he's horrifying. Um, so... <laughs> So, Cronus was also a power-hungry upstart, and he didn't love that his dad Uranus ruled the whole universe, while Cronus was left to simply vibe on the Earth, um, who, again, was, of course, also his mom. So, when Gaia gets pissed at Uranus for hiding some of her kids, and these were the hundred-handed Hecatonchires and the one-eyed Cyclopes um, in Tartarus, and that's it's all the hell that Hades isn't, for those who don't know, um, <laughs> Cronus and Gaia teamed up to say a big fuck you to Uranus. Basically, Gaia came to all of her sons and was like, Hey, my beloved baby boys, your dad's a dick, and I would just love it if you would cut his balls off. To which her sons were all like, Damn, Mom, have you considered just getting a divorce? So, seriously, all of the other wusses didn't have it in them to chop off their own dad's testicles, but bold baby Cronus said, I've got you covered, Mom, just as long as dad's loins are uncovered. So Gaia brings Uranus out for a little tete-a-tete, which is actually an ambush, where Cronus leaps out of the bushes with an enormous sickle and slices off Uranus's testicles in a truly horrifying escalation of the got-your-nose game I assume Uranus played with him as a baby. So Cronus flung those bloody testicles right into the sea, but because Uranus was very godly and virile and ruler of the universe and all that, his ball blood uh, spilled on the earth, gave rise to the giants, the furies, and the meliae, who are ashtray nymphs, and the actual testicles turned into white foam in the sea, which then spat out the ultimate haughty Aphrodite, just like a trainee barista trying to learn how to use a temperamental milk frother. Um... <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> oh, shit. In the same sidebar, I just got this beautiful pack of art from, um... A, like a, a Patreon person I support and it was all like Greek god themed and it's all like beautifully gold leafed and there's some like super sexy Aphrodite like rising out of the sea half nude and as I was writing this I'm like, yep, she's ball foam. Okay. Alright. <laughs> okay. <laughs> She's fucking terrifying. Like, anybody who actually reads about Aphrodite oh, yes. is like, oh. oh, she's beautiful. No, no, no. She's fucking terrifying. Aphrodite she's a fucking is monster. uncanny Her and delightful. Are made of onyx. She's scary as shit. I, I you know? love Aphrodite because she is terrifying yeah. as shit. And, yeah. oh, terrible. 
Yeah. She's she's living proof that like you know guys want a woman on top. <laughs> That's really what she's. The like. Aphrodite Hephaestus relationship is she's my the favorite first fucking thing. Yeah, oh. she's the first dominatrix. She's uh-huh. the first dominatrix. That's what she is. We all aspire. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, anyway, guy didn't have the balls to cut off the balls, but Aphrodite, <laughs> she'll she'd rip them off with her claws. You yeah, know? exactly. Oh, pff, we'll get there. So Uranus was understandably unhappy about this and uh, called his sons traitors, but he ultimately decided to take a little time off from being god of the universe to recover from the world's most violent vasectomy. <laughs> Chapter two: Time for Cronus to avoid his problems. So Cronus and his sister Rhea took over the throne as king and queen of, well, everything, and ruled over the Golden Age, where everything was super chill all the time because immorality didn't exist yet and everyone always did the right thing. Exactly what you'd expect from a universe ruled over by a surprise castrator, right? So Gaia was generally like, good job fucking up your dad, son, but I do kind of miss being queen of everything. And Uranus was still a little miffed about his absent balls, but despite all of that, they still warned Cronus that he too would be defeated by his own children. Cronus said, I think the fuck not, and decided to handle that potential problem through the unprecedented degree of denial and problem avoidance that we'll get into. So you would think the simple answer here would be simply to not have children, but that was just not an option for Cronus, who wanted to fuck his sister-slash-lover-slash-queen Rhea so badly that they had six kids. Demeter, Hestia, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, and finally, wee little baby Zeus. (laughs) Gods are Lannisters, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, where do you think Game of Thrones got it? Um <laughs> So, instead of trying to foster a healthy relationship with his children to avoid further conflict, Cronus decided that the surest path to holding the throne was to eat his own children whole, all of them. Just swallow them <laughs> like a big fucking snake. After Cronus swallowed the first five kiddos, Rhea decided that she kind of wanted at least one of the children that she had very literally labored over to survive. So when Zeus was born, she did a quick little switcheroo and hit that baby! Rhea handed Cronus a stone swaddled in baby blankets, and apparently Cronus was just so hungry for a tasty baby-sized hot pocket fresh from the sister-wife oven that he shoved that stone right down his gullet without even noticing that it was in fact a rock and not a babby. So Rhea and Cronus settled back into domestic bliss, but apparently less horny because no more rock, ba- no more babies showed up for a while. Maybe something about having a giant rock in your stomach lowers the libido. Meanwhile, Zeus is growing up. According to different versions of the story, he was variously either A, raised by a goat, while a troop of male dancers shouted and clapped around him at all times so that Cronus wouldn't hear him cry. B, I wonder if in such a pissed off mood. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. B, <laughs> raised by a nymph who hid him by dangling him at the end of a rope hung from a tree so that he was suspended between the earth, the sky, and the sea, which were all Cronus's territory. Or C, uh, perhaps less weirdly, he was just raised by his grandma Gaia. So whether he was raised by goat or grandma, Zeus eventually grew up and decided that somebody had to do something about all the child eating that Cronus had done, and dadgummit, it might as well be him. Which brings us to chapter three, time for Cronus to fight his son. So Zeus is now all grown up and ready to get his siblings back. Huzzah! 
He gets an emetic from Gaia, and I imagine it's got to be real nasty to make a titan throw up years of years worth of children, but it works. So Zeus sneaks Cronus the emetic, and Cronus barfs up the baby Zeus rock first, and then the other five actual children, who are entirely fine and unaffected by godly stomach acid and crowding because they too are gods. Sidebar, I'm assuming that the other god siblings grew up in Cronus' stomach, which is one, a terrible way to spend those formative years and honestly explains a lot about their fucked up behavior and interpersonal relationships later on. And uh, two, had to have been a doozy for Cronus to carry around in his stomach. Like, having triplets is hell on the body. Imagine carrying five full adults in a large stone and you don't even have a womb. Like, uh, no thank you. I feel... I just have to interject here. Yeah. I feel so bad. Like, you know, those kids uh-huh. probably grew up with that rock for so many years in the stomach that it probably became like a developed version of Wilson from Castaway. <laughs> and I wonder if they took him with them to Olympus and it's like, we'll leave him. No, we can't just leave him. Uh-huh. He's yeah. our brother. They He's went our straight, rock brother. They went straight past the, the, the pet rock era and went for brother rock. <laughs> right. Yeah, they were like, oh like my- Like they put the big fucking fucked up googly eyes and uh-huh. they put on the fuzzy things. They just like glue it to the rock and they're like, we love you, rock. We'll never leave you behind. And they're just hugging him and stroking him. Yeah. And, and that's when the they real actually, reason why they... only gods can live on Mount Olympus because mm-hmm. once you become a god, you have to acknowledge brother rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that rock did actually go on to become a landmark like in, in ancient Greece. They, they So they say it was a big old rock that ended up being, you know, between a couple cities and people always looked out for it had its own name and everything it must have been really hard for them to let go and i bet they they looked down from olympus every day and they were like we're proud of you brother you're doing a good job being a landmark we love you (laughs) (laughs) also i there had to have been some like i know zeus is the one rescuing them but it's also got to suck to be like wait i'm sorry one of us got to live outside the stomach what No, you know what the other the weird thing would be like. We thought that the rock was Zeus. Aren't you <laughs> Zeus? No, you're not the real Zeus. The rock is Zeus. The rock is our brother. Yeah, I, I we mean, like him better. He's yeah, quiet. Come on, seriously, a rock has much better manners than Zeus does. <laughs> so I think I'd yeah, take rocks the rock. Don't rape people normally. Yeah, okay? yeah. I would take either Dwayne the Rock Johnson or an actual boulder over <laughs> over Zeus. So yes. <laughs> Uh, so please continue yeah yeah after freeing all of his god siblings from dad's tummy Zeus looked at this fresh uh, at this bunch of freshly reborn adults and said hey I know you don't know any other life than sloshing around inside Cronus's stomach but can you just hold the fort for just a minute BRB so Zeus heads down to Tartarus, the hell where Gaia's children, the Hecaton Kyries, and Cyclopes have been trapped. Remember how Gaia's whole quest for vengeance started? Yeah, those kids. So <laughs> Zeus sets them free and immediately appeals to their sense of vengeance and says, let's start a war, fam. The Cyclopes are very resourceful and great blacksmiths, despite having what I can only assume is terrible depth perception, given the whole one-eye thing. So they get smithing and uh, forged Zeus's thunderbolts, Poseidon's trident, and Hades's helmet of darkness, and absolutely nothing for the girls, because I guess they're all bare-knuckle brawlers. As a side note, I would have thought that the Hecaton Kyries would have been the more natural blacksmiths, given their hundred hands and also hundred eyes, because they had fifty heads, but I guess they were jocks instead. 
So anyway, Zeus, the Hecaton Kyries, and the Cyclopes re-emerge from Tartarus, no worse for wear, but fully ready for war. They regroup with Zeus's siblings, and they probably pre-gamed a little, and then they began the Titanomachy, the epic war against the Titans for control of the universe. This was really the Hecaton Kyries' time to shine, as they put those hundred arms to use flinging stones like a baseball pitching machine on steroids. This epic battle of the Titans versus the new Olympian gods dragged on for ten years before Zeus and the Olympians were finally victorious, and the ultimate fuck you dad move, Zeus imprisons Cronus and the rest of the Titans in Tartarus, the very hell that he had forced the Hecaton Kyries and Cyclopes into years earlier. We know the rest of the story. Zeus takes the Earth, Hades the Underworld, and Poseidon the Sea, and these bros usher in the era of Greek myths that we know so well. But that does bring us to the epilogue. Cronus mysteriously gets a nice thing. So, according to some versions of the story, after some time in Tartarus, Zeus fished Cronus back out of there and made him king of Elysium, basically ancient Greek heaven. The motivation for this seems dramatically unclear, because it doesn't seem like Cronus became much nicer in Tartarus. Maybe it's just that as Zeus lived and realized that he too was a dick, he sympathized more with his father? I don't know. <laughs> Another version of this has Cronus escaping from Tartarus on his own and casually becoming king of Latium, which is just a city. It's like he escaped- Maybe he just heard Johnny Cash is a boy yeah, named Sue. Right, this is- You should just chill the fuck out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this version of the story is just like, a god escapes from hell and is like, uh, I think I'm gonna become mayor of Boston now. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess, sure. And then in some ver versions, he just stays in Tartarus or the eternal darkness of the Cave of Nyx forever. But maybe he did get out and get rowdy once more. All of this Cronus research was kind of just to figure out who he was and what he was up to, and if he was the kind of guy who would consider starting an apocalypse if he didn't receive regular blood sacrifices. And I'm willing to say, yeah, probably to that. Like, mm -hmm. he seems like he does enjoy blood sports for entertainment value. And then all of this leads to my next question, which is, can you kill a god? <laughs> this has made my search history really interesting, by the way. Um... But there isn't really an end to the stories of most Greek gods and titans. It's more that empires dissolved and culture shifted and we just started telling new stories. It's a pretty natural inclination to think that once those cultures and worshippers are gone, the gods would be dead. I mean, of course, if you've read or watched American Gods, you've, you're fast-tracked on this discourse already, and their general consensus is that the gods are not dead, simply temporarily forgotten. But I digress. What matters here in this case, to me, is what the Greeks thought. Can you kill a god? Can you kill a titan? The short answer is no. The long answer is technically maybe, but we haven't seen it happen yet. So deicide, the act of killing a god, is a difficult thing in most mythologies, especially in Greek mythology. The closest allusion to actually killing a god comes in the form of the uh, Ophiotaurus. So the Ophiotaurus is a creature that is half bull, half serpent, usually a bullhead and a snake's tail, an interest of a less ungainly creature. In Ovid's Fasti, or the Book of Days, he tells of a prophecy which said that anyone who burned the entrails of the Ophiotaurus would receive the power to defeat a god. The Titans tried to use this power against the Olympians, the, against the Olympians during the Titanomachy, and they succeeded in slaying the Ophiotaurus, but one of Zeus's eagles swooped in and stole the entrails before the Titans could burn them. So even in this case, the exact terms of defeat are unclear. This case has a really implied finality, 
But there are plenty of gods and titans who have been, quote-unquote, defeated, but not killed. Like Atlas, a titan who is sentenced to hold up the sky forever after the Titanomachy. Prometheus, another titan and fire god who literally sculpted humanity out of clay. He gave humans fire and Zeus was pissed, so poor Prometheus was tied to a rock and had his liver pecked out by an eagle every day and regrown every night ad infinitum or until Hercules rescued him. So... Anyway, the long and short of this is that the titans and the gods can be impaired and they can be imprisoned, but none of them have ever died. Yet. But, <laughs> all this to say, yeah, Cronus is very much alive and well down there. I mean, well, maybe not, but alive, sure. Assuming he got out of Tartarus, probably well. As are all of the other titans, as are all of the Greek gods. And that's not even talking about the expanding pantheon we have. Like, once you- they just talk about old gods. That encompasses a lot of vengeful gods from a lot of different cultures. There's a hell of a party going on down there, waiting for blood sports. And wow, do I want to... Well, okay. I was going to say, do I want to know what their story is? Maybe I don't, because that's more horrifying than anything else we can imagine. But interesting lore to dive into. <laughs> yeah, that pretty much actually says it all. Yeah. They're all buried down there somewhere beneath the earth, all asleep, and... They need some sort of weird fucked up form of pay-per-view in order to keep sleeping. And in this story, it seems like they've just gotten to a point where they went, let's sabotage them so that we can wake back up because uh -huh. we're gods and we can do that. And that's kind of the funny thing was that there was just this illusion that you could control them and that mm -hmm. that control never existed to begin with. Yeah. That, that is the funniest thing of all. Yeah, it's it's such a convoluted idea. It's like It's like the idea of, you know, you put like putting a, a piece of mesh around a great white shark and being like yeah we're uh we're we're corralling this we're containing this we're in control now <laughs> yeah you're not no. you're never in control of a beast no. that could kill you with its pinky or one tooth <laughs> like, we can't control anything no can't control any of our elements no That's i mean all of humanity is trying to control the world trying. around us and it's a futile effort and this is the ultimate symbol of that yeah so, congratulations, Whedon and Garner. Did, uh, yeah, did good. Had a box, a budget to box office of thirty million to sixty-six million. So doubled its money, just a little over. So not bad. Yeah, not bad. And it's, I mean, it's gained a pretty cult following since then. So it's, oh. it, it's definitely going to go down in, in in the history books of horror. I think. So. Absolutely. Yeah, the only thing that I was kind of shocked was, uh, the only thing that kind of shocked me was that the music was done by David Julian, and he hasn't done really done a lot of horror soundtracks, and it was probably the only time where I've ever went, meh, when I listened to a soundtrack. <laughs> I was kind of yeah. wondering, like, where the fuck is Christoph Beck? Because Christoph Beck usually worked with Whedon on every single project, you know, from Angel to Buffy. Mm -hmm. um, Beck's really good. It's just kind of like, where was Beck in this? Yeah. So. Good point. Yeah, uh, it was not not a particularly notable soundtrack it was fine like for the score yeah yeah, yeah. The there, was, there was nothing that made me go like oh this was bad but do i remember any songs also no yeah. <clears throat> so um yeah, here at the late night we like to uh do worthy causes and talk about you know what we like to celebrate and may is national bike month and that may not sound like a cause but um <laughs> 
I would argue that the amount of carbon emissions that one would save the earth if one used a bicycle instead of a car uh, is pretty arguable. I'm not saying do it if you like live out in the fucking Yukon or, you know, if you live up in Maine during the middle of winter in a blizzard. Yeah, I mean, um, there are brave souls. My uh, my chemistry teacher in high school would bike 60 miles to and from school every single day. She loved it yeah. and she would get pissed every time that the snow got too deep that she actually had to drive her car. She was a special woman. I, I love her very much. <laughs> I would definitely say that bicycling is definitely one of the better ways to go if you can do it because I think that it's healthier for your body. Uh, it's much more relaxing uh, than driving, stopping, getting screamed at. You know, unless of course you live in a big city, then you're bicycling, you know, breaking, stopping and getting screamed at and then almost getting hit by an SUV. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that if you can do it i think that bicycling saves a lot of time a lot of energy and i also think that uh it's a much healthier way you know especially if you've been sitting around and watching horror movies your whole life i think it's definitely <laughs> another way to uh you know keep your body in shape and keep your you know keep the earth in shape too yeah and as a side note if you live in a place like i do where which is not particularly bicycle friendly um you know maybe look into how to build the infrastructure to 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 make a places accessible for biking like there are many parts i know in the u.s that are, are not built for biking many cities many urban areas like yeah, if, if this is something you're passionate about see what it takes to put in a bike lane <laughs> or see what it takes to improve the sidewalks or whatever it might be like there are many many ways you can go about this if this is a cause you care about and it's a, a good one uh well if you liked if you like the innkeepers, uh, I'd recommend watching anything by Ty West with more stuff by Ty West. I think that The Roost <laughs> from 2005 or House of the Devil uh, is another one that's really good. Uh, the Sacrament is also another particularly notable film that's really good. Um, Ty West mix really well, Ty West mixes really well with more Ty West. As far as Cabin in the Woods, um, it's one of those rare times where I would say more action horror. It's definitely something where I would probably always have it as the finisher to anything where there's an mm-hmm. action horror night. Or if, in this case, you had something that was really slow that you wanted to balance out with something really fast. Yes. <laughs> um, 30 Days of Night. Um, any of the any of the monsters that kind of connect to, to the cabin in the woods, which is pretty much any of them. Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness cabin fever anything cabin themed that also works i think it's also really good for balancing out something really slow with something really fast as we did here and i also think that following it with most action horror uh would be acceptable too mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah so yeah this was a fun month thanks for listening everyone <laughs> bye bye the late night a horror podcast is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at moneria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.